Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. The American Cannabis Nurses Association was founded to support patients and educate nurses in endocannabinoid therapeutics. The association's president-elect for 2017 is Dr. Carrie Clark, an associate professor of nursing, and she joins us today from Maine. Dr. Clark, thanks for doing this. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you and to reach a lot of listeners out there. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got involved with cannabis. Um, you know, I was a cannabis user in my youth, in my early 20s. And um, uh, before I went to nursing school, I stopped using cannabis because I was having a lot of anxiety when I used it. This was back in the early 1990s. So there was a lot going on in the world. We had a certain uh, President Bush <laughs> in office. So there was a lot of turmoil in the Middle East, not unlike uh, things are now. And um, I would watch the news at night and I'd just start feeling a lot of anxiety. And I was becoming a nurse. And at that time, being a nurse and using cannabis was pretty much, you know, if you tested positive for cannabis, you'd be out a job or you wouldn't get a job. So I stopped using cannabis at that time. Um, but my husband is a rock and roll musician. So I certainly have been around cannabis. I lived in um, Sonoma County in California, and there's definitely a specific, unique cannabis culture there. I I think when I lived there, I was the only, we were the only household on our little block that was not growing cannabis outdoors in the summer. So it, it was an interesting place to be. I moved to Maine in 2010 to start the RN to BSN program at University of Maine at Augusta and to really do that from a holistic perspective. And I I was a little surprised that there was medicinal cannabis here in Maine, but I didn't really see it anywhere. I didn't see the culture that was so open in California here in Maine. A couple of years after that, Dr. Dustin Sulak, who your listeners may have heard of and you may have heard of, uh, he has an office near our campus at University of Augusta. And he came to speak to our students. And actually, it wasn't about cannabis, but uh, I figured out what he did. And he came back later to talk about cannabis. And he actually told me about the American Cannabis Nurses Association. And I started looking into cannabis more deeply. Um, And it's amazing how, particularly I'd say in the last five to seven years, there's just been huge amounts of research that have been done. And I, I just feel really excited about the future of cannabis as a medicine and excited for nurses and patients to be working together. Dr. Clark, when you were uh, taking uh, cannabis, I assume you were smoking it, right? Yes. Now, after you stopped smoking it, did you notice any physiological differences? Um, I, I think what I noticed was just that I had less anxiety. You know, when I look back at it now, uh, I, I was fairly young. I was in my early 20s. I think I had a lot of work to do on myself that I 
wasn't doing um, because I was using cannabis instead. And uh, so I really think that when I when I stopped using it really regularly, that I started exercising, so I was supporting my own endocannabinoid system, and I think that really made a big difference. So I think the main th- and you know back then we we weren't talking so much about strains and what kind of cannabis we were using and that sort of thing. So I probably was not using the right strain for myself, um, and I wasn't really thinking of it as a medicine at that time. So. I mean, it's really changed in the last 20 years, it hasn't it? It has really changed a lot, yes. We know so much more, and we know so much more about how the strains work and can help people. Uh, we know the benefits also of using lower doses of cannabis to really support people in their healing. And so there's there's a lot that we know now that we didn't know in, say, 1990, 1992. When you talk about lower doses, talk about that a bit, because... My understanding is that you should take enough to satisfy the cannabinoid system within your body, correct? So if some people take a lot, other people take a little, some doctors recommend a lot, some doctors recommend a little. Right. And it's almost like vitamin therapy. What's right, what's wrong? Right. Yeah, you know, those those are good points. So um, I I think... One thing to think about, particularly, you know, if there are nurses that are listening here, is to really encourage, you know, I would say for most people starting low and going slow to to increase to where they can get to a level of comfort with any symptoms that they're having for whatever they're trying to um, manage or heal is is kind of a smart way to go. You know, 2.5 to 5 milligrams of THC. I know some people are calling that a microdose. Um I personally would just call that a low, and for some people it might even be moderate starting dose. So everybody has a different um, endocannabinoid system, right? So everyone almost has like a different map in their system. So some people, depending on how many CB1 and CB2 receptors they have and where they're located in their body, that can lead to how sensitive they are, particularly to the THC. So CB1... Receptors are mostly found in the brain. They're also found in other parts of the body. But if someone has a lot, a very high concentration of CB1 receptors in their brain, they might end up being really sensitive to THC uh, and therefore may need lower doses to be comfortable and to avoid feeling anxious and to avoid, you know, almost sort of overwhelming the endocannabinoid system. So I think it's something that's really individualized. I agree that there are different schools of thought there. Uh, One thing I think people should think about is we can build a tolerance to cannabis so it's important to take occasional breaks um some people are recommending one day off a week uh some people are recommending you know a couple days off a year some people are saying take a month off every year uh so i just think there's a lot that we don't know and and i think there is room though for people to sort of use their intuition working with a cannabis doctor or cannabis nurse, and really finding what works best for them. We interviewed uh, a lady a couple of weeks ago who was taking cannabis, and she was not doing it under a doctor's supervision. She was doing it on her own. But Uh what she said is that taking cannabis is like a dance. You really have to find out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think that's what makes this 
medicine so different from other medicines that are out there. You know, we have this sort of allopathic or traditional approach to medicine, Western medicine in the United States. So it's like I go to my doctor, I get a prescription. It's for, you know, a certain amount of milligrams for this medication. I go and I take it. And it's, you know, in in many ways, that's also not very individualized. There are probably people that are taking either far too much or far too uh, not enough of certain medications because uh, of the way that prescriptions have been practiced in the United States. And I think what's neat about cannabis, too, is that there is that room to really explore for yourself what supports your healing. Uh, what helps you to to feel comfortable and what helps you to feel that your symptoms uh, are being managed or palliated. So I I do agree that it it really is sort of a unique, I love that idea of it being a dance uh, of figuring out what works. And then, you know, I think it can change over time too. And people need to be open to, um, you know, changing with it over time too, what they're doing and, and how it's helping them and really taking inventory on what's working and what might need to be added in or changed. Dr. Clark, in talking to those in the medical community about cannabis, do you often get the response that there haven't been enough studies of the efficacy of cannabis and more studies need to be done? Yeah, I get that all the time. I actually was at the... um, this wasn't necessarily with providers, but I was at the Maine State Legislature last week providing some testimony, I guess, for the committee that is working on marijuana regulation in the state of Maine. We've become a legal state. However, there still is a process that needs to be put in place for how cannabis will be sold uh, in the state and how it will be monitored and so forth. And one of the things that they brought forth was like, well, there's just not enough evidence. And I'm, I thought, well, you know, there are well over 20,000 articles published in respected journals. I think the problem that we have with the whole issue around reefer madness and prohibition is that they're not the kind, they're often not the kind of studies that medical people tend to value. You know, they're not, they tend to not be the randomized clinical trials. They tend to be more qualitative studies talking with people about what works for them. And then they tend to be what we call in vivo or in vitro studies. So they're done in a test tube or they're done with other animals that are not human beings. And I think that's one of the issues. Another issue, of course, is that, you know, really standardizing cannabis as a medicine is a challenge when you're doing these types of studies so that people are in, you know, if we want to to that sort of allopathic model um, and become less stigmatized and more recognized as a, I guess we could say pharmaceutical medication versus an herbal medicine, that may be a direction, one direction anyway, uh, where the field is heading. Well, that's an interesting point you make, because if we treat this as an allopathic medicine, then we are going to have standardization of, of protocols. But if we treat it as an herb, then there really isn't any standardization, because each person's body is different. Right. And so I think that's maybe we're looking at this, at least those people in authority are looking at this, through the wrong lens. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's it's the lens that they have been trained with. Um, it's the kind of almost like a framework or model that they've been brought up with. So it's, it's hard to shift that thinking to, hmm, maybe this is an herb and it should be monitored and regulated more like 
how we monitor and regulate tea or other supplements. So, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of a fine line we walk there. Um, personally, I'd, I'd love to, you know, it'd be great for patients and for other people to be able to walk into a store, uh, know that the cannabis that they're buying is safe and has been tested for mold and pesticides and heavy metals and know the THC, CBD, and other cannabinoid profile on it. Uh, know what the dosing is on it and to be able to walk out and trust that they have a safe medicine. You're absolutely right. I think one, yeah. one of the issues we have in this country, Canada announced this week that it is going to legalize uh, marijuana on July 1st of 2018. Then it I will, did that. Then it will become completely legal. But here's the problem. You're, you will only be allowed four plants Per household, household. not per person, four plants per household. Now, my question is, why doesn't the government only allow people to have four bottles of wine in a household? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right. Or if you have if you have if you have a 26er, you're only allowed three three bottles of wine in the household. I mean, it's it's a plant. It's not it's not a narcotic until you heat it up. Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of this, again, just goes back to the prohibition era, the reefer madness, it's the stigma that seems to hang around us. Uh, here in Maine, they worked really hard with becoming, and I was part of the, um, I was very supportive of the Yes on One, the legalization effort here in Maine, because I think there were too many patients and too many people out there that were not able to access the medicine because of the barriers with the medicinal program. So I was very supportive of that. And I think we need to take those steps in order to eventually have more freedom with a plant. But here we're allowed six plants for every adult over age 21. And you can keep all the product from the plants that you grow yourself. Unless you're a medicinal caregiver, though, you can't sell or trade or barter barter with it. You can donate it and share it with other adults over age 21. Four plants seems per household seems really low. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it's I've heard it framed as it's still a prohibition, right? I mean, it's a little bit of freedom, but it's still a prohibition. And I've used that same analogy before. I mean, can you imagine if people went to the liquor store and it's like, oh, sorry, you can only buy, you know, one six pack. And then if they found, you know, your house could get raided if there was more than a six pack of beer in your house. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's a plant that grows. It's been on the planet for so many thousands of years, right? Along with us and our systems have probably evolved together that they work well together. Um, so it, it is interesting how, you know, it, it's, it, it can be a little frustrating and make us wonder, well, well, why? You know, what are are there bigger things here at play than we know about, right? Um, with the pharmaceutical companies and the alcohol industry. The alcohol industry. I think we've seen a big drop, particularly in places like Colorado, with tax revenue really shifting over to the cannabis industry and away from the alcohol industry. Um, so. It's it's interesting times. I think we're in just a very interesting period as we move out of prohibition and governments and corporations and people all kind of, you know, trying to come together to, to find a place where this is going to work for everybody. Uh, and sometimes it feels like we're taking baby steps or two steps forward and three steps back. But 
I think it's happening slowly. Dr. Clark, are you primarily involved in educating nurses on cannabis or do you work with patients as well? So um, I, I do a little bit of consulting, but usually it's, it's informal and I don't get paid. And I just talk to people about the plant and educate them about how it can help them. I give them, you know, refer them, up, at least up until we became legal here in Maine, uh, refer them to how they can get their medical recommendation and then, you know, different caregivers and so forth. So here in Maine, they can either go to a caregiver who can grow the plants for them and help prepare their medicine, or they can go to a dispensary or they can grow it themselves. So, uh, and then of course I do a lot of work through ACNA working with nurses and helping to support their education as well. Uh, this year I'll be presenting at the American Holistic Nurses Association, just a real basic overview on the endocannabinoid system and uh, the nurse's role and a little bit on ethics and legal issues um, and a lot about, you know, more specific illnesses and um, getting folks to get into the data around how this might help and what the role of the holistic nurse is. I'll also be going to the um, um, National Congress of the Oncology Nursing Society and giving a talk there. And I think that's a huge step forward. I think oncology nurses, at least here in the States, are really at a place where they could support patients, particularly using cannabis for palliation of symptoms when they're when they're getting that intense chemotherapy. Uh, so I'm excited about both of those opportunities to really educate on a larger scale. Yeah, and get the word out there. With the ACNA, do you have to be a nurse to take the curriculum, or is it, is it open to uh, members of the public as well? So we do have a curriculum that we developed, um, and it's uh, we work with TCMI. And it's geared toward nurses, but anybody can take the curriculum. Um, and as far as our organization, organization, of course, is geared toward nurses. We do have a few folks that are, you know, like friends of the organization that uh, make a donation to be a member. But uh, our, our main focus is working with nurses and and really focusing on what this role of cannabis nursing is going to look like in the United States. Uh, I'm currently working on the scope and standards of cannabis nursing to align us well with other organizations, but to also show our uniqueness of what we do and how we consider the whole patient when we're supporting them to learn about and use cannabis. Dr. Clark, is the attitude towards cannabis any different in the nursing profession than it is the general public? Um, I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say it's it's probably pretty split, and it's probably split along the lines the same as, as with the general public. Again, I think there's just a big knowledge deficit out there. Um, there still is plenty of stigma. Uh, when I was working with the Yes on One campaign here in Maine, they had me write a letter. They sent it out to, I think, thousands of um, doctors, nurses, and nurses' aides, and um, I got a lot of backlash from that from nurses who contacted me and also contacted the university where I teach and um, clearly didn't understand this, the safety issues with cannabis and the, um, the benefits of using cannabis. So it goes back to, well, can you blame them? They're not educated about it in, um, in their academic experiences if they don't seek out the knowledge once they're out there in the practicing world, then they have no idea the benefits and they kind of are just going along with what they've been told. So 
I, I do see that, it, you know, again, it's starting to shift. And I think as we lessen that stigma, as we have more and more patients, more and more recreational users, I think it's something like 60% of the United States population now lives in a state that is either medicinal or legal uh, for use of cannabis. So I, I think it's I think it's starting to shift. And I think nurses, once they get the education, once they understand the physiology, and I think that's really key for nurses to understand how the endocannabinoid system works, how, have, how being deficient in your own endocannabinoids can impact your health, and how supplementing um, with exogenous cannabinoids can create a homeostasis and better health that nurses will eventually all get on board. Is the endocannabinoid system taught in medical school? I would say generally that it's not. It's also not taught in nursing school, even though we've known about it. And uh, since, what, the early 1990s, I'm hopeful that that's going to shift. I actually, for our holistic pharmacology class in, in my um, the curriculum that I developed at UMA, uh, we do have a one-week module on cannabis and, endo- and the endocannabinoid system. Uh, it's not enough, but it's something, and it's a start. And uh, what's really fun about teaching that is that I get to see the students, many of them, really shift and change their attitudes once they really understand the physiology. So, Or even just the basics of the physiology, it begins to make sense. Or, I, you know, certainly in my experience, when medical professionals actually see it working, Right. You know, like, uh, I don't know if you know my story, but in a nutshell, I was uh, terminal with cancer in 2011 and used cannabis oil and cleared myself. And initially, my physician did not want to hear a thing about it. He literally covered his ears and said, right. la, 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 la. And he went from that to this man who spent half an hour talking to me saying, Corey, cannabinoids are amazing. Do you know how many people we kill each day with pharmaceuticals? Yeah, you know, and yeah. and certainly I've even in, even within my own family, I have two nurses, nurse sisters, and it's been interesting to watch them evolve as they saw what it did for me. Yeah, I agree. I do think that we need to really find ways to, um, and this is one thing that I'm really interested in doing, and and have started to get the wheels rolling a little bit, but to really gather more patient and population data about how people are using cannabis, the benefits that they are receiving from it and you know i've heard a lot of scientists call it well that's anecdotal data and i really disagree with that that is qualitative data it can be coded it can be used we can look for trends we can see what's working for people so we need to find ways to really capture that patient experience because the patient experience should be informing the medical and health professionals practice as much as you know any randomized clinical trial does so you know, a doctor who is opposed to cannabis will simply say anything to do with cannabis is anecdotal. But as you pointed out, and as Dr. Jordan Tischler has pointed out, a cannabis doctor in Boston who was yeah. an allopathic um, emergency room physician with the VA for 15 years, he said there are over 25,000 studies in PubMed on cannabis and 5,500 on alcohol. And, right, and we we did an interview yesterday with a young woman in West Virginia who became a heroin addict, 
and she was an alcoholic, and she wanted to die because she could not have children. She had polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome. Yes. And uh, she finally decided that she wanted to live, went back home to Virginia. I think she was living in Pittsburgh. Went back home to Virginia, went through withdrawal of heroin, which she said was just awful. And she started taking cannabis oil, and to her amazement and surprise, uh, many months later, after she was clean from heroin, she got pregnant. Wow. And uh, the interesting thing, all of her cysts on her ovaries were gone. Wow. And that was just from taking cannabis. And she speaks out in favor of cannabis now. And she's exactly like the person you made reference to earlier. Didn't know anything about marijuana until she started taking cannabis oil that was given to her by a friend. I mean, those stories are amazing. They may be anecdotal to the medical profession, but they are real stories. And as she said, cannabis saved her life. Yeah, and to me, that's, you know, that that is, to me, that's real. As a qualitative researcher myself, that's real. That's real data. That's something that, you know, I could look at through the lens of, a narrative analysis if I looked at her story, or I could look at it through the lens of phenomenology, or even just do a case study with her. And that's, that's really valuable data. And there's so many people out there that are truly um, benefiting and thriving and supporting their endocannabinoid system. So they have homeostasis, so they can have a better quality of life. And I, I really, you know, I really feel ethically obligated to, um, to share as much as I can and to do as much as I can to support people in their own healing process. And I believe that cannabis should be a big part of that. Uh, you mentioned the pharmaceutical. We have mentioned the pharmaceutical industry several times and, you know, medication errors and going to the hospital and all that. That's, that's like the third leading cause of death in the United States. So the more that we can help people to be healthy and happy and really thriving with supporting their own body's homeostasis and keep them out of those situations, uh, I think the better healthcare outcomes we're going to have as well. So, Dr. Clark, people like you do a great job in educating the medical professionals about the medical benefits of cannabis. What can the average person do to educate others? Right. Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's sharing um, their own knowledge and their own experience, uh, doing, you know, helping to end the stigma as much as possible. You know, I think there's still this idea of like people use cannabis and then they're, you know, not doing anything or they're just watching TV or playing video games or that sort of thing. And I think the more we can get professionals out there talking about it, the more we can begin to end the stigma around it. Um that will really help a lot. And then just sharing their stories like they do here with you on your show and um, sharing it in their communities. Uh, I actually, sometimes I think churches, if they're open and accepting, can be places to share the story too. I know one of the fastest growing populations that's using cannabis in the United States are the the elderly because they don't want to take all these medications Uh the average 45-year-old in the United States of America takes four prescribed medications. That, to me, is really an abomination. 
most of those medications, if the person changed their lifestyle or was using, you know, and or using cannabis, they could be off those medications and having a much higher quality of life without the risks that those pharmaceuticals carry. And I think that's important, too, for both lay people and professionals to really change how we're looking at prescribing and taking those heavy pharmaceuticals because the side effects are real and um, they can be very dangerous for your health. So, Did you say the average 45-year-old is on four medications? Four prescribed medications in the United States. Wow. That, when I heard that statistic, I was just blown away. You know, if you think about it, okay, maybe they have anxiety, so they're taking something for anxiety, or maybe they're taking two things for anxiety, you know, like an antidepressant and uh, I don't know, something, you know, an anti-anxiety medication, then maybe they have high blood pressure and high cholesterol. So there, you know, that's just an example of what four medications might look like. But all of those medications have, you know, serious side effects. And some of them, I feel like we're not even going to know. Um, we're not even going to know about the long-term effects of some of these medications for many years to come. Yeah, that's, so that's, I, it, I to work with their doctors too and I thought that was a good example earlier of going back to the doctor and saying this is how I healed myself using cannabis oil and really letting the doctor know uh, and working with them because people need to they may find that they need to come off some of their prescribed medications and they need to make sure they do that safely with a doctor's supervision well it's a long road it's not going to happen overnight uh, no. education takes a long time and you and I may be in rocking chairs before it's totally accepted <laughs> in society <laughs> yeah. Dr. Clark it was great to talk to you anything you want to say in conclusion I'm just honored to be on your show and um, happy to be part of this amazing movement I really feel like uh, it called me and um, I hope to be able to be a service for cannabis patients and cannabis nurses and healthcare professionals for the rest of my life. So, yeah, that's good for you. That's great. It was fabulous to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark. Much appreciated. Thank you. Good luck to you, too. Thank you. And there you have it another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Wherever you are in the world, thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout Podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down. down.